Guys, let me pray with this real quick. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you this morning with the true intention, Father, of humbling ourselves before you and worshiping you. And Lord, we do celebrate your wonderful cross, especially this this past weekend and week, Father, that um, is just the perfect uh, power in our life. Father, the resurrected Lord, and we just worship you this morning. Father God, I pray that you would, as the psalmist said, Father, you would search our hearts this morning. Try our thoughts, know our thoughts, and Father, see if there is any wicked way in us. And if so, bring that to our mind this morning, Father, so that we can live and walk humbly with you today. Father, I pray for Jeff this morning. I pray, God, that you would anoint his lips this morning with your words. And that, Father, we would have eyes, ears, and hearts to hear. And so that will change our life today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning, men. Try again. Good morning, men. There we go. Now I'm on. Well, I'm excited to come back and uh, talk about Isaac. My name, um, we met last week, but my name is Jeff Walshhauser. I'm the Life Stage 3 pastor, so I work a lot with uh, the 30-somethings and the young families. And I'm really excited uh, to be back today. I don't have any cool testosterone-laden tank pictures uh, like last week, but I am excited about what we're going to learn from Isaac. And if you remember last week, what we talked about and is that Isaac was displayed a radical surrender to God, if you remember that. And we talked about how I had that really cool machete. I don't have one of those either this week. But we talked about how he, he allowed, as a young man, for his, his dad to bind his arms. He allowed his dad to help him, or he climbed up on the altar. He laid there with his father, holding a, a large knife of some sort over him, about to kill him. And he continued to lay there. He was radically surrendered to what God had for him in that moment. Fortunately, God provided another sacrifice And Isaac lived. He didn't need to bring him back to the dead, but he lived. So radical surrender to God that Isaac displayed. And then we talked about how Christ, really, Isaac is a a type of Christ. And that Christ is really the ultimate sacrifice. And that he was radically surrendered to God. Remember in the garden, he he was there. The broken human part of him is saying, Lord, can you take this cup away from me? But not my will, but your will be done. Three times. Lord, please, I I, I don't want this. This This hurts. This is hard. I'm exhausted. But not my will, but your will be done. And then you can almost hear it again. Did he think, Lord, do you have another sacrifice for me? Is there another way of provision at all? And he said, no, not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, also really the ultimate really example of radical surrender that we can learn from. We also talked about three statements that we can affirm, that we must affirm to radically surrender to God. First is, God is good and wants what is best for me. God is wise and knows what is best for me. And God's in charge. He has authority and is able to bring about what is best for me. If we don't surrender to God, we're in an unwinnable battle with Him because He's in charge and we're not. He's God and we're not. He's a creator, we're the created. He's in charge, we follow His lead. If we want to fight Him on it, that's fine, but it's unwinnable. It really is. In fact, I'm... Sharing with the guys at my table, I have a, a one-year-old, a uh, 13-month-old that that's decided that he's taking over, and uh, 
So I feel like he's in an unwinnable battle with me, although sometimes I feel like I'm in an unwinnable battle with him. Uh, but at some point, we're going to get that figured out, and he's going to learn that I'm actually the authority in the home. We're going to get that figured out. So I don't think he realizes it, just like <laughs> that, he's, he's, that uh, it's really in his best interest that I, that I win that little battle with him, the test of the wills. And the same is true with God. It's an unwinnable battle. But there's a much larger distance between us and God than me and my one-year-old. Much larger difference. If we surrender our lives, we have a life of peace, contentment, joy, and hope for eternity that ultimately brings God great glory. So that's where we started with Isaac. He started as a young man, radically surrendered and honoring to God. Now, if you will, pull out uh, on the third page. You should have a timeline of Isaac. You guys see that? I just want to kind of orient us. In the army, we'd always have a map orientation. This is where we are. This is where we're heading. All that kind of stuff. So I want to orient you to where we're going today. If you look back down towards the end, you see Isaac was born and he was at, at zero, zero years of age. And then 15 to 20 uh, is when Isaac offered as a sacrifice by his father Abraham. And then if you notice, you look along here, Isaac was around for about 180 years. But do you notice how little we really know about his life? I mean, there's a gap of 80 years, a gap of 40 years. There's nothing. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at two key places today and drill down and say, what can we learn about Isaac? And so you look at when he's about 60 years old, he has two sons, twins, Jacob and Esau. And then again, around 140, 80 years later, we see when Jacob deceives his father Isaac and steals his brother's blessing. And we're going we're gonna to look at those two things. And what we're going to find out is that Isaac offers us a grave warning for how we should live. So last week, we had a fantastic example. And this week, we have a guy that we say, whoa, I don't want to be like that. And it's a warning to us because any one of us can be there. And some of us are struggling to be there right now. In fact, I'd say all of us are struggling at some level to be in this place that we find Isaac to be in when he's 60 and when he's 140. And I imagine all those 80 years in between. So let me pray for our time together, and then we're going to open up uh, the text and uh, see what Isaac has to teach us. Lord, you're, um, you're so gracious to us. You give us your words so clearly in written form. You revealed yourself to us, and I pray for our time together today that uh, not my words, but your words will impact each and every one of us at a heart level. So please bless our time, work on our hearts. Thanks that we can be in a deep, growing relationship with you. Not just serving you, although we do that, we surrender to you, but that we can communicate with you as a father, as a daddy, as a friend. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Open up uh, your Bibles to Genesis 25. First book of the Bible, the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 25. And I'm just going to tell you up front what we're going to discover about Isaac. And it's the second point there on your outline, and it's, and it's this. And we're going to unpack how I got there. But I want to tell you up front what the big idea is, and that's this. Isaac is controlled by his appetite. And we're going to see what he has an appetite for here in a moment. But Isaac is controlled by his appetite. And let me show you where I get that. So Isaac 25... We're going to start in verse 21 to give a little background to the story. Read along with me. Verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. By the way, just parenthetically, um, 
I'm challenged by that statement because how often do I pray for my wife? And do I pray for my wife for 20 years on, on a topic? I mentioned that last week at the end. But this was a guy, at least, that prayed for his wife. And so we talk about flawed yet faithful. We're going to learn how Isaac was flawed today. But at the same time, he was being faithful at some level, praying for his wife. And you notice he wasn't saying, Lord, I pray that I can have a son. And I'm sure he wanted that. But he was praying for his wife who was barren. And any of you who have wives that have dealt with any kind of infertility know that man, it's a deeply emotional, foundational issue for them. They feel deeply. But, and, and look what he did. He prayed for his wife. Wow. So are we praying for our wives? Anyways, that's not the point of today, but it, it sure jumps out of here as you read it. Verse 22. The babies jostled each other within her. That's Rebecca. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, to her Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now you remember that Abraham was given a promise by God, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, that I'm going to bless all nations through you. I'm going to make your name great. And then he said, and through Isaac is where this promise is going to come through. And basically what he's saying here, what God's telling Rebecca, is that your oldest son Esau isn't going to be the child of promise, so to speak, the child through which the promise of Abraham will flow, it's going to be the younger, which we'll learn in a second is Jacob. So Jacob is the son through which God's promise given to Abraham through Isaac and then now through Jacob will flow. Does that make sense? That's, so that's, the, that's one of the key points that, that God's making here in verse 23. So now continue with me, verse 24. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Now, here's a key part we learn about Esau's appetite. Verse 27. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Pretty cool. While Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah love Jacob. Now notice that. Here we have two parents that really are playing favorites. One loved Esau, one loved Jacob. And it tells us why Jacob, or excuse me, why Isaac loved Esau. What does it say? Who had a taste for wild game. Now I don't know about you, but that seems a little silly. I'm going to play favorites with my children because one son goes out and is a good hunter and brings me back the food I like to eat. Pretty silly, but that's what he did. It's right here. You can see it. So he had a taste for a wild game, so he loved Esau. And Isaac's addiction to his appetite impacts things. And the first thing we see it impacts is his relationships. Because I, you can almost think about this for a little bit. If you were married, and many of you are, and you had twins that were born, and because of some little silly thing one son did, maybe it's because... Uh, you're a musician, he's good on piano. Maybe it's because you were an athlete or wanted to be, and, and he's a good athlete. Maybe it's he's really smart, and he, and he does really good in grades, and so he's your favorite, whatever it is. And then for another reason, your, your wife loved the other kid more. Can't you see the conflict that would come in that marriage already? And what is that going to do to your kids? As you love one more than the other, do you think they're going to feel accepted? No way. His appetite for wild game, tasty food, impacted his relationships, as silly as it was. Read with me on down, starting in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking, so these kids are a lot older at this point, 
Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. So Esau's out hunting. He's working hard all day, probably doing a lot of walking. Maybe he uh, bagged a good kill and, and he had to haul it back himself on his shoulders. So he's, I mean, he's exhausted. So he comes in and says to his brother, I mean, a simple thing. He had some food there. Man, can I have some of that? I'm hungry. It's been a full day. And so then, how did Jacob reply, which is, is, I think, a little silly as well. First, sell me your birthright. Man, what a response from your brother. I'm hungry, well, sell me your birthright. What he's saying is, give me a double inheritance. Give me the inheritance you're going to get, which is a double inheritance. So, so give me the wealth that you're promised as the oldest son. That's what he's asking him to do. Make me a wealthier man because you're hungry, and so I'm going to try to manipulate you into getting something out of this. Verse 32, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread, some lentil stew, and he ate and drank. And then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. I think what we see here is that Isaac's appetite for good food also impacts his legacy. Do you see it? Esau's like his dad. Like father, like son. He came in hungry, and instead of saying, and he wanted some food, and his brother said, okay, well, fine, you can have some food. Let me make a ridiculous request of you that will make me rich. And he gave it to him instead of saying, well, no, I'll go find food elsewhere. But no, he's hungry. His appetite controlled him. Like father, like son. And I think it's a poignant reminder to us as dads is the sins, the things that we deal with, get passed down. You know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You've heard that. Chip off the old block. Well, what kind of fruit are you producing? Boy, that hits me. I have, a, as I mentioned, my one-year-old son. I have two daughters as well that are older. What are they going to learn from me? What are they going to catch me doing? That's kind of scary at times uh, because, like you, I'm, I'm flawed, and I hope they learn a lot of the good things <laughs> and that I'll keep my appetites under control so that I don't just pass on Appetites that control me to my son is what particularly comes to mind. Now flip over. We're going to skip chapter 26. I had planned to go there originally, but we just don't have time. Skip over to verse 20, or excuse me, chapter 27. As we hit 27, what we find is we, we had the birth of the two kids, Jacob and Esau. Then we have this idea they grow up and, and we see who they are. One's a quiet man, one's a hunter. We have favorites. And now we have Isaac that's old, and he thinks he's about to die. His, his brother Ishmael died at a young age, and now Isaac thinks he's about to die. And that's where we enter into the story. And so look, at me, look with me to 27, verse 2. Isaac said to Esau, I am an old man now and don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like. And bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing. Do you notice that again? Go get me some wild game and some tasty food. It's a theme that you see recurring over and over with Isaac. And he's like, I'm not just going to give you my blessing, but I'll give you my blessing once I get some of my tasty food. Interesting. So Rebecca overhears this whole interaction. She knows that uh, the blessing is supposed to come down through Jacob, even though Esau's the oldest. And she also... Her favorite is Jacob, so she wants what's best for him. And so pick up with me in verse 8 of chapter 27. And this is Rebekah talking to Jacob. So Rebekah says to Jacob, Listen carefully and do what I tell you. 
Go out to the flock and bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Interesting, the tasty food thing comes up again. Give him something that he likes and we're going to use that to deceive him. As the story goes, if we were to read the rest of it, we're not going to take the time this morning, you'll see that Rebecca and Jacob were actually successful in deceiving Isaac. And Isaac gave his blessing to Jacob, and then he realized it wasn't him, and he was, he was distraught. You know, of course, Rebecca and Jacob were wrong. I mean, they used deception to bring about what they, what they wanted, what they thought God wanted. I think they're acting in their own self-interest, not God's. God would have brought it about either way. But I really believe that, that Isaac's appetite for tasty food and wild game impacted negatively his judgment. It impacted negatively his judgment. I think he was easily deceived because he wanted what he wanted, and that was food. And this appetite for tasty food governed and controlled him. In fact, if you go down through this passage in verses 1 through 40 and 27, you'll see that the, that the words game or wild game are mentioned seven times in 40 verses. Tasty food is mentioned six times, and drink or eat is mentioned ten times. In this passage. And then we just looked at the other passage when his sons were born. This idea of food and an appetite and it controlling them is a recurring theme for Isaac. And it's kind of sad. It really is kind of sad. Now, Isaac is controlled by his appetites and has a negative impact on his relationships, his legacy, and also his judgment is impaired. When I was studying to a lead today, what really stuck out and was obvious is this idea of the appetite. With Isaac and how being controlled by our appetites is such a warning to us as men. And then I had a decision to make because um, there's, a, there's an obvious appetite to talk about, and I call it, I don't know if it's going to work out, there's an elephant, there we go, there's an elephant in the room. Uh, maybe you can smell it, we can certainly see it at least now, and you can feel it. And that's there is easily one huge appetite that we deal with as men. That, that really is a big deal and threatens to control us. And it's the idea of, of dealing with pornography and also this idea of an unquenchable, unquenchable appetite for sexual gratification. And many of us men really struggle and are plagued by an unquenchable appetite for sexual gratification. It's, it's a big deal. And the, the problem is real. And here's just a few statistics. Comscore Media Metrics reports 70% of men from 18 to 34 visit a pornographic site in a typical month. Thirteen years ago, any of you familiar with Promise Keepers, a men's movement that was real popular in the, in the 90s? Thirteen years ago, at one of their stadium events, they kind of did an informal survey of the men in the stadium. And typically they ran, I don't know, any place between 20 and 40,000 men at a time. 50% of the men in the stadium that had come to this event had viewed pornography in the last week. 50% of men at a Christian men's event. Pretty powerful. And um, that was 96. So 13 years ago, with the Internet becoming bigger and bigger, I would venture to guess it might be worse. According to Focus on the Family, in October of 03, so just three years ago, three years ago, or excuse me, six years ago, 47% of families report pornography as a problem in their home. I don't look forward to that with my... my uh, young son, and dealing with that. In 2006, Christian Net poll results indicate that 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women are addicted to pornography. 
So that's just three years ago. 50% addicted. Now we're, we're not talking about I viewed something in the last week. We're talking addicted to pornography. This is a huge issue. Uh, it, it's a really a big deal. We live in a society now where I, uh, the, the younger men have grown up with the Internet, and it used to be you'd have to go someplace to, to, to look at pornography. Now, I mean, with the, with the wireless cars, you can sit in your own car with your battery pack or your inverter and go park someplace and look at whatever you want. We even have smartphones. I, I assume, I don't know, I haven't heard of it, that you could go to the pornographic sites on your smartphone wherever you are. So it not only is where we can go and look at it, but it, it comes and gets us now. It's a really, really challenging thing. And in a room like this, uh, I don't know if it's 50%, but I would guarantee that there's, there's men in this room that are addicted to pornography, and you haven't told a soul. And uh, I really had a choice to make this morning about this uh, as I studied, because I could touch on this issue, and, and we could all kind of... Uh, go along our way, and, and, and it would be fine. But what I'm going to do is really spend the rest of the time, and we're going to talk about, about this issue. And I don't know about you guys, but uh, I like my personal space. Like when I went to Europe with my wife, we went to the Ukraine on a missions trip, everyone was in my space. And it really got on my nerves, and I, I struggled to get irritated. Like, back off, you know, get out of my space. And even when I was first married, my wife, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but she would always come up and stand right next to me. And... I should probably be okay. She's my wife, and I like her to stay close to me more now, but I would find myself even, I would kind of gently push her away and not realize it because I wanted my space. And so we, we do that as men, and I think it's to our detriment many times as we, we give each other too much space. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to get in your space a little bit, maybe for some of you a whole lot, because this matters. I do this out of love. I struggle with what do I do with... Uh, with this issue, and what do I do with my eyes? What do I look at? Like every man in this room, I think if you're breathing, if you have a pulse, as Ken likes to say, and you're a man, this this is an issue for most of us. And I think it's a, there's there's some exceptions. So some of you say you might aren't addicted to pornography at all. You're doing great in this area. Hallelujah to this morning is a reminder and a call to continue the high standard that you're keeping. If you're way over here and you're, you're addicted and you're steeped with pornography, it's also going to be a call to a higher standard for you and a, and a plead for you to, to come out of that. And we're going to talk about that some. Now, is this an issue for you personally is one of the key questions. And when I was at Family Life, which is a, a division of Campus Crusade for Christ, I was the manager of recruiting, and I also worked on our evaluation staff. So people would, would come and say, I want to be uh, missionary staff with, with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I would say, great. We'd give them an application. We'd run them through a number of, of interviews, and they'd fill out paperwork, and we'd call references, do all the stuff. But then we, we also did something called a purity call. And... Uh, most of the men didn't necessarily look forward to it, but me and one other guy, my boss, Gary, would have a purity call with each man because we found that this issue is true, that the statistics are right. There's that so many men were coming to us addicted to pornography, and we needed to address that issue before they were ready to come on staff. But what I'm going to do is I want to run you through some of the questions. I don't want you to write down the answers. I don't want you to discuss it. Uh, I want to get maybe in, in your space some, but not that far. But... If we were to have a discussion one-on-one on the phone or sit down in my office or your office, how would you answer these questions? The first question is this. How do you define pornography? How do you define pornography? I think the best 
illustration or example of that was one guy said, well, it's anything, regardless of the media or the form, that causes me to find sexual gratification outside of God's plan in marriage and with my wife. I thought, wow, that's good. So that means the internet, that means a romance novel, that means the TV shows, the movies, the um, cheerleaders at the ball game. It could be uh, ladies at work or at church that, that make you struggle. Any of that really could be pornography then. I liked that answer. It was, it was, it was good. The next question is this. When is the last time you looked at pornography in any form? Third question. What were the circumstances and how frequently have you viewed pornography? Now, these aren't the questions we typically ask each other as men, is it? (laughs) I'm going to keep going. Number four, who knows about your viewing of pornography? Your wife? Your friends? Who knows about it? For many of us, not a soul knows about it. Number five, how does this viewing of pornography manifest itself? This really makes you uncomfortable. Masturbation, fantasizing... Are you uh, uh, dissatisfied with your relationship with your wife? I mean, how does it manifest itself? Number six, how does viewing pornography affect your relationship with your, your wife or, or, or even girlfriend? Does your wife know and understand of the challenges you face as a man? Boy, that's a hard one. Wives, are, women think we're gross when we deal with pornography. They are disgusted by it. They don't even want to talk about it. But does your wife know that? Does she understand it? And the last one uh, that I'll hit is, if married on a scale of 1 to 10, how satisfied are you with your physical intimacy and sex with your wife? I don't want details. That's your business if I'm asking this question. But where are you on that scale? How satisfied are you with her? Because if you're looking at pornography, I guarantee you're not satisfied with her, because with your wife, because she can't live up to this fantasy world concocted in your mind. She can't live up to this, the, the lies that are portrayed in the movies and the smut and the pornography that we look at. It's all lies. It's fantasy. Our wives can't live up to that. So if you're not satisfied there, that pornography impacts you. What I want to do is just take some time. We're going to go to Proverbs. We're going to look at some principles from a, just a brief section of Proverbs for pursuing sexual purity. Some principles from the Proverbs. So turn to Proverbs chapter 4. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Right after the Psalms. And again, what I'm, what I'm going to share is applicable to me. I work hard in this area to make sure I've got things straight. It's, in fact, it's even been an adjustment as a pastor. Um, I interact with women a lot more than I ever have. I mean, I was an engineer. I was a tanker. I, I was around men. Uh, so it's an adjustment. There needs to be boundaries in my life in this area. So whether you're doing really well in this area or you're really struggling, these principles apply to you. So look at uh, verse 23, and let's read it out loud through 27. So 4, 23 through 27. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. First point I want to make is from verse 23, and that's this. Lust starts in the heart. We prayed as small group leaders this morning. One of the guys was praying, Lord, uh, work on our hearts. And and that's really the, the key. I mean, look at it. Verse 23, above all else, guard your heart, 
for it is the wellspring of life. And our heart is really the, the control center. And that's all the good that, that's in our lives comes from our heart. And I'd also say the negative, like the lust, the lust for pornography starts in our hearts. Uh, some of you are doing the quest. Uh, yesterday we were in Mark chapter 7 in the quest. And listen, listen to what this says in Mark 7, 21, part of the reading. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. So you notice that. So from within, out of men's hearts, comes evil thoughts and comes sexual immorality. The battle starts in our hearts. The heart is the wellspring of life. It also uh, it goes from our hearts and, and it's in our thought life. And it really matters how we think. A lot of times when we've taught kind of sex education, we do marriage mentoring, or premarital counseling, we talk to the men about, you know, maybe you even heard this, you know, the, a woman's greatest sex organ is her, is her mind. And if we want to have a, a good sex life with our, our spouses, we need to move slowly and we need to make sure that we're connecting with them on, a, on an emotional level. I mean, men, we're ready anywhere, anytime. Let's go. Uh, but for women, they've got to They've got to ramp up. But I, I think that our minds are also our greatest sex organ. So how we think matters. Second Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish an arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And here's a key part. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. How we think matters. What we think about ends up, a lot of times, being what we do. It it comes out. And then what we do and how we act, doesn't that end up becoming kind of who we are? And where does it start? It starts in our hearts and in our minds. I remember in college, this was a big deal for us as as young men, and, and we would say, how's your thought life? I haven't had anybody ask me how my thought life was in a long time. But maybe we need to be asking ourselves, each other, and it's a regular. I, I would, wouldn't it be cool if we were in relationships with men that we could go around and say, man, how are you doing? How's your thought life? And you knew the guy loved you and cared about you and was asking because it mattered to, and he cared about what was happening with you. Wouldn't that be neat? So guys, how's your thought life? It's a big deal. Verse 24. In Proverbs. So verse 23, above all else, guard your heart. So lust starts in the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Verse 24, put away perversity from your mouth. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Use your mouth wisely, guys. The jokes about uh, women may be innocent, maybe not. I would say not. I'd say it reveals what's going on in your head, what's going on in your heart. So use your mouth wisely in the way you talk about, about women the way you talk about sex, the way you talk about um, anything uh, to do in this area. It matters. What comes out of your mouth is really what's coming out of your heart. Let's go on to verse 24 and 25, excuse me. Let your eyes look straight ahead of you. Fix your gaze directly before you. Guys, we need to control our eyes. Billy Graham used to say that you can't help the first look, but you can always help the second one. I would say you can also help how long you look the first time, right? Because you guys have done it. Do you ever see a lady that, uh, that's showing more of, her, of herself than would be my preference? And I do a double take so quickly, 
And, and, and sometimes I don't catch it. I look, I'm, whoa, you know. And then I realize, man, what in the world is that? And sometimes it's just like I'm surprised. But other times it's not. It's what's in my heart. Guys, we can help the second look. You ever hear the idea of bounce? I can bounce. Whoa, I see something there. Hello, let's bounce over here. Or bounce to your shoes. Or, hey, how about keeping your eyes up? Women wear low-cut stuff. It's attractive. You look at that and you're like, whoa, cleavage. Right? You guys deal with it. I know you do. You have testosterone running in your veins. Guys, keep your eyes up. It matters. The other thing is, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter, and there's a little song that we sing to her. It says, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Your father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Guys, it's true for us, just like it is for my six-year-old, about being careful, eyes, what you see. Brutally starve your eyes, man. It matters. We, you know it, you see images and they stay there. We're very visual. It goes in and it's locked in our minds. Starve your eyes. Job 31.1 says this, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. We can do it. I think one of the ways to change your hearts is to learn to use scripture in this battle that we have with our flesh and this idea of pornography. Psalm 119.11 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do you hide God's word in your heart? Well, you memorize it and you meditate on it. That's why memorizing a verse like this helps. I'm starting to look. What can come to mind? You kind of, it's a discipline. It's hiding God's word in my heart. I, I, you know, Lord, I've, I've made a covenant with you not to look lustfully at a girl. I've made a covenant with you not to look lustfully at a girl. I mean, I mean you start talking God's word, it makes a difference. And it, and, it, and it impacts your heart when you meditate on it and you memorize it. Ephesians 6.17 says, Take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon in the spiritual battle is listed in Ephesians 6. So we need to learn how to wield God's word. Jesus did it when he was tempted in the desert by Satan. What did he do? Go read it. He used scripture to combat Satan. He used God's word from the Old Testament. Finally, look verse at... Uh, from this passage, verses 26 and 27. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. I'm calling this take action. Because this guy, what he's talking about is he's, he, we're basically being commanded, being encouraged to make sure that we stay on the firm path. You're taking actions. You're taking steps to the, do the right things. You're also not putting yourself in harm's way. Firm foundation. So I want to make a, a call here and a plea with you to a, the highest standard. Because I think we start, we can, we can deceive ourselves and we can play games in this area. And we can say, well, I'm standing on firm ground. Well, what, what's the standard by which we live? And here's what it is. It's in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. It says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So what is it okay to watch? What is it okay to look at? Sports Illustrated magazine? Probably okay except for February. Right? You guys know the swimsuit issue in February? Guys, that's pornography. What about looking, um, what about this? What, what if I were, I want to take myself out of this. What if, a, if your neighbor came up and said, hey, I need to talk to you. And it was about 9 or 10 at night. You come outside with him. He says, come with me. He walks you down the street. And, and there's an attractive young lady down the street. Maybe she's, I don't know what age, but she's a good looking lady and she's fit. 
And then you say, watch. And you watch her, and what does she do? She strips down from the waist up. She's topless, and you're looking on. And then what happens? Her boyfriend comes in. And then what do you see? Well, they start to mess around, and next thing you know, they're having sex, and what are you guys doing? You're watching. Now, you probably wouldn't participate in that. You'd probably say, man, I can't do that. That's disgusting. Get, get out of here. It's voyeurism. Peeping Tom. We think of that. We go, pervert. But what is really different than, for, with that than watching a movie where the exact same thing happens? What's different? Well, you could say, well, they, they consent. In fact, they get paid a lot of money to make a movie so that you can watch them in this uh, so-called romantic scene. But then you might put them in another category that's closer to prostitution. They're prostituting their bodies for your sexual gratification. Let's be honest about it. So what we watch, what are you guys seeing with your eyes through that window called a TV? Or worse yet, when you go to the movies and it's larger than life and you <laughs> you have this great sound system. So what are, we, what are we looking at? What about the window of your TV? What about bra ads in the newspaper? What about Victoria's Secrets catalogs? Um, I could go down the list. But the bar is high. Here's what Matthew 5.28 says. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a high standard, is it not? That's what God calls us to. So what are you willing to do? We have this high standard. I think you would all agree it's worth attain. It's worth striving for. Be holy because I am holy. But what are you willing to do to get there? That's the question I ask pretty regularly of guys when we talk about things. Well, my wife, my marriage is in shambles. Well, okay, what are you willing to do to fix it? Well, I'm addicted to pornography. What are you willing to do to fix it? Matthew 5, 29 and 30, right after verse 28, where it says, anyone who looks lustfully has committed adultery in their heart, says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. So what are you willing to do? Are you willing, if, uh, if you're really tempted by the Internet, are you willing to get a filter? Are you willing to have every e- website you go to be sent to a good friend of yours and to your wife? Are you willing to not be on the Internet except for when other people are around? Are you willing to throw your TV out, get rid of it, sell it at a garage sale if you had to? That means you might miss the Mavericks and Cowboys games and the Masters. Is it worth it? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to avoid uh, places and that tempt you? Are you willing to close your eyes, look at your feet when the cheerleaders are bouncing around down there at the Cowboys game or at the Mavericks with the dancers? To me, it seems like all small sacrifices. And in the moment, it doesn't. But when you're in a moment like this, it sure does to me. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But... When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Guys, we need to flee situations that put us in the way and tempt us where we can't bear it. And God says he promises us that he'll provide a way out. He does. The question is, are you willing to take it? There are ways out, maybe even throwing away your TV. That's almost like blasphemy here in America, isn't it? Getting rid of your TV. I have one, so I'm not not throwing stones here. Mark Twain, I love this quote. He says, there are several good protections against temptation, but the surest is cowardice. 
Joseph thought so. Do you remember that? Back in Genesis, later in Genesis from where we are, he was in there and his master's wife desired him and tried to seduce him. And what did he do? He ran. He fled. He got out of town, left his coat with him. He ended up getting accused. Um, his, His master, his boss, didn't believe her. But what could he do? So he's thrown in jail. He stood for what was right. He fled. He was a coward in some ways, but I would say the man had great courage. He was willing to run away and, and let people think what they want to of him. I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to flee. God provides us a way out, and we need to flee, guys. The next one is that we, when we take action, I think we need to pursue holiness in community. We call this, in my home, we call it getting into the light. 1 John 5, 7 says, this is the message we have, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we do not live by the truth. Guys, if pornography is an addiction for you, and it's in the dark, you haven't told anybody, you're not working on it, you're in the darkness, and you're not living by the truth. But if we walk in the light, if we get it out in the open, if we talk about it, we have fellowship with each other in really a deep way. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. My encouragement to you guys today is if this is an issue, you don't have somebody you're talking to about it, that you find somebody. And Ken, if you, Ken and I both know of groups that meet for one purpose, and that's to talk about this issue and support each other in pursuit of holiness in their lives because they've struggled so much with pornography and sexual addictions. We need each other as men to lock arms. Finally, with this idea of taking action, we need to fight pleasure with pleasure. We must fight, uh, Randy Alcorn says it this way, we must fight pleasure with pleasure. We cannot just say no to impurity. We must say yes to something better. Instead of false pleasure, we must pursue a deep and eternal pleasure. I wish that we felt the consequences of sin right when we did it. There'd be a lot less takers. And I wish a lot of times we could also feel the the rewards that come from pursuing holiness and doing the right thing immediately also because it would be easier to do it. But we need to not just say, no, 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 don't do it. If we just do that all day and try to put our head in the sand, it won't work. We've got to be pursuing something that's higher and better and an eternal pleasure, and that's relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't just say no. We've got to pursue something better. It's fighting pleasure with pleasure. It's important, men, that we pursue something higher. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We pursue it, God will fill us. He promises us that right there in Matthew 5, 6. Let me just, um, we're running out of time on this. I was afraid that might happen. But let me pause and talk about two things, and some of these I've already talked about. Is, um, first is this. This is a real issue, and um, what is done in secret will be found out. I think we, we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, it's just dabbling, it's just a little bit, I've got it under control, or it's in secret, I'm ashamed. Let me tell you, there is freedom to come out and confess this, because what's done in secret will be found out. It's going to happen. It's much like gravity. I have a book. We think that we're moving to the edge of the table and we can hang on, right? But what happens if I push? The gravity takes over. At some point, if you're dealing with this in secret, the gravity is going to take over and you're going to hit hard. It's going to wreck your life. It's going to wreck your marriage. It's going to wreck your relationships. I promise you that. This is a big deal for us as men, and we need to talk about it with each other. And that's really the second thing I want to point I want to make again before we end. 
and that's this, is that we've got to talk to other men about it. We need to have a culture of being able to talk about it. Sometimes I look at men and I say, so, so uh, you know, how, how's, your, how's your purity? And I get the look back like, I can't believe this guy just asked me that question and uh, that, that I did that. But, boy, wouldn't it be neat if I asked that question and, and the look, look back was, uh, man, thanks for asking. Wouldn't that be neat? I had a friend that did that one time. I was home alone, and, uh, and we were in the front yard. I still remember Jason, a good friend uh, in Little Rock, and he says, so how are you doing with your eyes while your wife's gone? And she's gone for two days. What are you watching? I, mean, I could have hugged the guy. He cared enough to wade into a tough topic with me and ask me about it. Again, if you... Uh, if you're dealing with this, please, you may not want to come mention something to me after this or to Ken after this. You, you're a little ashamed of it, but you need to get it in the open. So please talk to me or Ken, and we can get you connected with some men that will encourage you. It's important. This will wreck your life. I, if if uh, getting down on the floor and groveling and begging and pleading would help, I would do it. And I talk about the subject because um, I care. And it's out of love, not because I like talking about a subject that makes us all squirm a bit. (laughs) Thomas Carlyle says, Conviction is worthless unless it is converted to conduct. So if God's been convicting you in the past or this morning about this in your life, whether you're doing really well and you just need to take a baby step up and you just need to go a little further, talk about it with a friend. You know, I've been doing well in this area, but I need to improve. Or maybe you're in the middle. I've been struggling some, but I need to improve. Maybe you're way over here and and you're really addicted and you have a long way to improve. Either way, it doesn't matter if you're feeling convicted about this. If you don't convert it to conduct, if you don't take steps and action, it really doesn't matter. And I would say it's not really conviction. It was more of a thought. So I want to encourage you to do that as men. Um, I, I have a few more notes. I'll just leave it alone. Isaac, as we can see, was Faithful, and he was also flawed, flawed, but let me tell you, God used him. So I don't want to leave this on a downer. There's hope for us. There really is. God can use you and me. We're all flawed. And I'm going to do, well, we're out of time. Let me just pray for us, and, uh, and then we're done. Lord, thanks for how you love us, and that no matter what we deal with in our lives, what addictions that challenge us, what things we do that make us feel ashamed and guilty and low and pretty miserable about ourselves, that there's hope in you and that you forgive us of our sins, that you empower us to win over the sin in our lives. And I pray for any of the men in here that uh, are dealing with an addiction that's in the secret, that they would bring it into the light today. Bring it into the light today. Give them the courage to do so. And I pray for all of us as men that wherever we are in our purity, wherever we are in our thought lives, that we would take a step towards holiness and move closer to being like you. Thanks for how you love us. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the example we have in Isaac. In Jesus' name, amen.